Thanks for listening to the fifth episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Maneshian. Today's episode is entitled Resurrecting Ghosts, Part 2, My Continued Conversation with Ian Nagoski. just listening to a piece called Hov Arek, performed by Gomidas and recorded in 1912 in Paris. While these recordings are considered public domain, I recommend that you obtain the 1994 compact disc release called The Voice of Gomidas Vartabed on the traditional Crossroads label, which has detailed liner notes. Before we get to my conversation with Ian Nagoski, I wanted to say thanks for listening in and for the wonderful feedback. The program is now fully available on all major digital platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, amongst others. Help spread the news and hit that subscribe button on the digital platform of your choice. And now, the conclusion of my conversation with Ian Nagoski. Let's talk about this concept of detective work with Harut Arakelian and Harry Kazelian. So we, we talked a little bit about, this is kind of a man's um, uh, kind of hobby where you know a lot of people stand around a car <laughs> or you go down into the smoky basement and then you start talking about stuff. These guys, um, along with yourself, have become in some ways detectives of history. You guys are going back and you're trying to piece together history, stories, what kind of responsibility do you feel with regards to uh, this type of quote-unquote work? 
And when you are able to kind of come up with a narrative and weave it into the meaning of the song, um, you know, how important do you think that that is? Because I think half the, the beauty of what you guys are doing is the story and the times behind the music. Yeah, that's how things are going to get remembered in the end is um, uh, the context that they're that they're given. Um, yeah, I grew up with jazz and blues and country and classical music and popular music and stuff. And people wouldn't listen to the Beatles records if they didn't know who the Beatles were anymore. It's it's the idea of you know who the performer is and what they meant and what they accomplished in their time and place, right? Um, and researchers, record nerds, have been doing this for decades and decades and decades. Now, there's generations before me who studied jazz musicians and blues musicians, country musicians, and, um, you know, did their best to reconstruct uh, individual biographies. Um, some of it's been done on immigrant performers, uh, certainly uh, Dick Spotswood, uh, who, you know, did, did a lot of work in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and Chris Strawitz and um, a, a lot of people have, have done really important stuff. And so we're trying to add to that. We're trying to uh, contribute to the, the body of knowledge that's available to people who are interested, where there are gaps that seem significant you know we're trying to trying to fill them in some um i i'm fully melting potted american i don't have any ethnic identity other than being from delaware you know so i got no horse in the race in terms of any nationalist agenda or ethnic pride thing you know sure. and a, a lot of people do you know greeks and armenians and uh, uh arabic-speaking people and um you know, oh, lots of people, Slovenians, you know, really into Slovenian music um, and, you know, are carefully documenting their heritage, um, whereas some ethnic groups, not so much, you know, uh, the Danes. <laughs> Nobody's researching the Danish immigrants, you know. Um, so, uh, but I, I like the music and I care about these artists because they're artists, because they're people who dedicated their lives to the expression of something. Um, and they're, they're performers. I mean, Kemeny Minas is not some raw weirdo from nowhere. He's not some basement-dwelling guy who just made up music by himself. He's a professional. And, and it's a performance. It's a work of art that's been crafted. And yes, he only did it in one or two takes at the time of the performance. That doesn't mean he didn't rehearse it like crazy and get the timing down just right so that it would be good for the side of a disc. I don't know how long that song was in performance. Could have been seven minutes, you know? But side of a disc is three minutes, so he makes it a three-minute record. And that's true for all these performers. It's, it's their art, and it's the dignity of having created something of lasting value. And the fact that America has been so hostile to the contributions of immigrants that uh, is a motivating factor for me. Harry and uh, Harut are gifted, gifted researchers, deeply passionate, profoundly knowledgeable, and really cool guys. I'm very fond of them both personally, and I'm so lucky that we got to be friends and that we've been able to have these conversations and, and work together, you know, work in concert and share stuff back and forth. Um, there's a constant communication. One of us will just get a bee in his bonnet about some thing, some detail, a date, a coincidence, uh, a name, and we'll just shoot the others a text or an email. And next thing you know, everybody else is going, huh, yeah, never thought of that. Okay, right. So then would that mean also that? And, you know, so that's how we're creating some of these stories collaboratively or you know just somebody will go like oh i decided i'm going to go interview so-and-so you know i'm not or just the fact of 
all of us being interested together instead of in isolation. It gives a sense that there's a, a community and a reason, somebody to talk to about this. So if I thought to myself, oh, maybe I'll go talk to, uh, you know, so-and-so. Oh, but, you know, I know who would want me to do that. If I ask these questions, I can give those answers straight to somebody else who cares. So then there's a reason to do it. And they're possessed, you know, they're, they're just really into uh, the music. They have access to emotional landscapes and language landscapes that I don't have access to at all. So I'm just so fortunate to be able to just enjoy and appreciate their love and enthusiasm for the music. Um, it, it helps me hear it. It helps definitely. me. It teaches my heart. It, it really, um, um, I think collaboratively what you have done uh, together um, has, has been extremely rewarding and very, very important. So obviously thank you to all three of you guys for, for doing what you're doing. Um, to kind of shift back to the, the recordings themselves, specifically with regards to Armenian. So you've basically laid out that Columbia and Victor were the major players. Um, Parsekian was uh, an important figure uh, with regards to, to the industry as well. But, you know, for Armenians, as you know, as we go ahead and kind of look retrospectively on the 78s, the names Udi Hurant, obviously Komitas, um, those kind of come into play and they, they take on a mythic quality. But then there's everything else. Okay. And whereas you have the Armenian performer Kemani Minas sometime in the 19 teens, um, the vast majority of Armenian 78s were not so somber and serious. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, the, the majority of it is uh, party music, you know, village music. And uh, yeah, um, I should clarify momentarily that Colombia and Victor were big players in Turkish language, Arabic language uh, music uh, through the 19 teens and then simply stopped right after the Second World War, about 1919. They just stopped recording stuff in Armenian and Arabic. It's not entirely clear why. Partially, maybe they just didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what a hit record was. They didn't know what a good performance was. And they were shooting around in the dark. They didn't want to mess with it. Maybe the market was just too small and they were just selling, you know, dozens, hundreds of copies of records. And they wanted to focus on things that they thought might have, you know, a larger selling potential. Anyway, they kept their catalogs in print until the early 30s, but they were only selling old material or imported material through the 1920s. In, but what winds up happening right about 1920 is that there's some changes in the, the, the copyrights go out of, the, the technology uh, patents go out of copyright and it's possible for more people to uh, make records themselves. And so little independent labels start popping up right about 1920. One of them, coincidentally, not coincidentally at all, <laughs> is M.G. Parzakian who starts his own record label, in fact, had a, a factory in northern New Jersey, produced his own records, uh, manufactured them himself. And um, yeah, from, you know, through, through the early 20s, he was one of the largest producers of uh, Turkish language recordings in the U.S., you know, on his own. Um, and then he sells his catalog in about 1925 to a jewelry and watch repair store on Third Avenue in New York City. Uh, the Vartasian brothers, who keep a lot of the Prozacian material in print uh, on their own new label called Pharos. And Pharos puts out material in Turkish, Armenian, and Greek. Um, and in fact, the violin player, uh, Nishan Sudefchian, uh, Nishan Sudefchian, pardon me, I'm slurring a bit, uh, who actually is the violinist who performed on all of Achilles Poulos's records, was a jewelry and watch repair guy at that shop. He was a diamond setter, had brought the trade of diamond setting with him from Trabzon, where he was from. Anyway, so most of what winds up getting recorded, yes, is not these uh, big sorrowful laments. It's not high classical music. Um, certainly, uh, Armenak Shamaradian is 
probably the best-selling Armenian language performer of the 19-teens. Sure. His recordings of 1917, particularly his recording of Hayastan, sold like hotcakes to Armenian households. Um, he was deeply important to uh, Armenians and a wonderful singer and, you know, stayed loved and revered, partially his connection to Komitas personally and partially just him. And he toured, you know, he played around the U.S. Uh, for years. And, uh, yeah, he, he was very important to people. What about the um, emergence of Edward Bogosian? Because there's a very famous song that came out of that particular era, the 1940s, that quite frankly, um, as I've heard it uh, over the years, I, I come to kind of dismiss it as just right. this, um, <laughs> this, this, this kind of, you know, kind of a rather annoying song, actually. But uh -huh. at the time it was written and performed, tell me a little bit about Edward Pagosian and uh, Sude Sude. So Pagosian was a, a guy from uh, Istanbul. His father was an actor. He grew up in the theater, came to the U.S. and started performing in plays, um, operetta stuff. Uh, he made a bunch of records for Pharos, as a matter of fact, um, doing kind of, uh, yeah, funny uh, theater music. And he was a, a fun party guy. He was a comedian, um, dressed up, did faces, big talker. Um, I interviewed uh, 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 Soren Baronian, the, um, the clarinet player, uh, not too long ago, and asked him, play, played him Sude Sude, and asked him about, uh, about Edward Bogosian. And um, uh, Soren said, oh, yeah, 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 he knew my dad. He used to come over the house. And I was like, oh, really? What, what was he like? And he was like, never stop talking. You know, the night ends. He's walking down the stairs. You hear him still talking by himself out down the stairs, out into the street. <laughs> Dude never shut up. He was a fun guy. He was a party guy. And he was sort of you know, everybody's uh, drunk uncle. And he played these comedic, a little bit on the racy side, down home songs about, you know, playing cards, about husbands and wives not getting along about, uh, you know, the problems of immigration, about people like hustling for immigration status, uh, about sons-in-law who won't, you know, pull their weight and make some money, all this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, he wrote a bunch of good songs. And one of them was this one, Sude Sude, which is massive seller. <laughs> I mean, it's thousands of copies in uh, the very early 1940s. And um, entered into the standard repertoire of uh, uh, Armenian popular music in the United States. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I didn't know that because I ain't. <laughs> I never went to any Armenian weddings or picnics or whatever. <laughs> so I've got all these Armenian records and I'm listening to it. And I put the needle on it and I go like, oh, "This rocks. This is a fun little rock song to my ears." Yeah. And uh, I. Mentioned to Harry Kazelian, I I'm interested in this guy Bogosian. What's the deal with this Bogosian stuff? And he goes like, Oh man, really? He's like, that, You know that song is like the Armenian Havana Gila. Like it's oh, just it a cliche. It is. And yeah, it was. Like, uh, it was up until um, you basically kind of um, you and your your basement pals, as they say, um, uh, Harry and and Harut. Uh, going ahead and really creating a narrative with regards to the song, because I, I knew the song through Richard Hagopian's Keftime uh, series, the LP series back in the 60s. Um, and it was a huge hit. And every time I went to Armenian American dances, I mean, it's that's one of the songs, like like you said, that would be played. But the fa I never knew the origins of that song. And I, I didn't really realize I went back to the 40s. I thought it was just something somebody made up. Um, you know, in the 1960s. But uh, to me, it's really interesting, Ian, because, you know, a lot of Armenians wanted to forget uh, and suppress mm. and let go of the tragedies that happened. And so it's interesting that they kind of turned to Kef music, party music. Yes, you had your Komitas. Yes, you had your uh, Kemani Minas. And we're going to get to a very important uh, searing performance of uh, a female vocalist uh, at the end of this particular program. 
but for the most part, these these albums were were Kef albums, and so it's it's interesting that you guys have kind of brought the the story back that this was created in the '40s by um, a guy named Edward Pogosian, and that um, and it was a huge hit. And what is a huge hit, by the way? I mean, what are we talking about as far as sales? Uh, was three thousand you know albums considered a hit back in those days? Yeah, 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 yeah. Three thousand is doing quite well. Uh, Sude Sude originally came out on a, a label called um, uh, Metropolitan, which was related to as part of a circle of labels running in New York City that were owned collaboratively by a uh, uh, an Albanian guy named Ajan Aslan, a, a Bulgarian guy named Nick Donif, uh, who played with Mel- Marco Malcon, tons of Armenian guys. Um, for a little while, a Greek accordion player named John Giarnos was part of the labels. And, you know, recorded generally kind of everything that was going on uh, in, in Turkish, Greek, Armenian, um, uh, uh, Ladino, which is uh, the, uh, the Spanish dialect that Jews from Turkey spoke. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was a label that would put out, you know, a, a disc in an edition of 500 copies. And then they would write letters to all the stores in Chicago and Detroit and Boston and San Francisco and wherever they knew there was a market and they would say, how many copies you want? And the store would say, we'll take 20, we'll take 50, we'll take 30, whatever it was, box them up, ship them off, and then hope that the store pays you for them. And then the store does pay you. Then you go press more, you press another 500 and another 500 and another 500 um, until it seems like the record isn't selling anymore or until the stores stop paying you, <laughs> which I think is probably how it happened most of the time. Um, but yeah, that, that record certainly was one that they kept repressing. And I, I'm sure that even on this little independent label, they must have sold 3,000 of those. Um, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe only 2,000, you know, but maybe 5,000 too. Anyway, a small seller is one where 500 copies don't sell. Um, and a good seller is one where you got like 1,000 copies, 2,000 copies, 3,000 copies. Ian, another kind of very interesting album that I've found in your Canary Records catalog is that of a man simply known as Dr. J.K. Sutherland. Now, there have been a lot of Americans, non-ethnic types that have picked up, have made albums, and you you, you listen to it, and it's technically very good, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of approached the listening of this album with the same type of mentality, except when I read your liner notes. There's a mystery, and there's a, a reality about Dr. J.K. Sutherland that up until I read your liner notes, I did not know. I have never heard of J- Dr. J.K. Sutherland. He plays a mean oud, and he plays it really, really well. Who was this guy? Yeah, James Sutherland, Dr. Sutherland is a extraordinary case. Um, beautiful person. Uh, so we know about him because he, in the 1960s, as a middle-aged man uh, who had made... A substantial amount of money, uh, self-published an autobiography called Adventures of Armenian Boy. Um, it's around. Uh, it's a beautiful-looking book, very fancy, beveled boards, gilt page edges, uh, profusely illustrated, a numbered edition of 2,000, most of which are signed. And so he tells his life story. And it's a gift to his children, this book. Uh, but it's also kind of a gift to the world, And along that same time, along that same line, he self-recorded a series of LPs. (coughs) He self-recorded a series of LPs of his own uh, playing. He was a, uh, he'd he'd learned to play organ when he was young, and he studied oud very seriously uh, throughout his life. So the, the story, in a nutshell, of Dr. Sutherland is that he was born uh, to parents who were from Aleppo. Uh, he was Syri- he was uh, he was Armenian, uh, born uh, Hagop Lutfi Sarkezian in 1897. 
his family were wealthy enough that they were able to hire a carriage uh, when the genocide came and were able to escape, uh, and he spent the genocide in Aleppo among a widely diverse um, uh, ethnic milieu. He studied medicine, uh, became a pharmacist assistant, and um, uh, wanted to be a doctor, and, uh, and, and learned to play organ at home, and learned to, uh, to play oud and violin. He left by himself in his late teens uh, and arrived to Watertown, Massachusetts, through the Port of Boston. Um, he had some family there. And when he arrived, he, he hadn't eaten on the boat for a couple of days and was really dead tired. And he had his oud with him. And uh, the man at the immigration port says, uh, you're going to have to pay duty. You're going to have to pay tax to bring in this instrument unless you can play it. And so he takes it out of the bag and plays uh, My Country Tis of Thee, which was at the time still the uh, de facto national anthem. Anyway, uh, from there he moves uh, out to Ohio and works a series of menial jobs, washing dishes, mowing lawns, and uh, getting himself through medical school, getting him qual himself qualified to become a doctor. Um, he has a beautiful description of it in his book where he says, um, uh, I, I love the place so much now, but at the time it was a, uh, a fearsome torture chamber because anti-immigrant uh, sentiment ran so strong through the 1920s and 30s in the U.S. He sure. said uh, it was a common saying, I'm 200 percent American. I hate everyone. Right. Wow. So he goes from there. He gets uh, trained in California, goes through his residency, uh, uh, marries an American woman and moves to Flint, Michigan, and changes his name to avoid discrimination. Um, he says in his autobiography, it is the only choice of his life that he regrets. Uh, he becomes a uh, very talented, highly respected cardiologist and surgeon. Um, he is a strident uh, Roosevelt Democrat, runs for a bunch of offices, um, consistently loses because he's, you know, <laughs> uh, a Democrat in a, in a Republican place. Right. But he believes in America and, and loves America. And he makes money. And he becomes an art collector. He finds a bunch of uh, rare paintings from Renaissance Italy, and, you know, makes money on that. Um, he does well for himself. And late in life, uh, after all these years, he buys himself a Stradivarius, uh, writes a, an article for the Strad magazine in England, where he bemoans the fact that Westerners don't understand uh, the, the beauty of uh, Anatolian Near Eastern classical music. And he corresponded briefly with um, Chemil Bey's son. Chemil Bey was this uh, you know, Mozart-type figure uh, uh, at the turn of the century, uh, uh, 1900 in the uh, Ottoman courts. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant player. So Udi Hrant was carefully studying Ottoman classical music from afar to the extent that he was writing to the son of one of the best players and trying to learn more details of how to present uh, classical Macan playing. So as he's getting up there in years, uh, 60 odd years old, he self-releases uh, an album of himself playing a, a, a kind of an organist. Hammond solo vox, it was called. It was a cheap little uh, electronic organ, rather expensive at the time, but at the time it was very new. And it's him playing Armenian melodies that he remembers from home. And he releases two LPs of himself playing uh, classical toxins on oud um, in isolation, having not had any community around him for this music, having not performed it. Uh, having just played at home as a very dedicated amateur for decades and decades. And it's a gift to the world. And it's a record that was, um, you know, totally forgotten, I think, for a very long time. Um, when I encountered it at the Armenian Library and Museum of America, uh, I could only find one reference anywhere online, which was a, a, from a, a researcher in Holland who was a pal of mine, a guy I knew a little bit, named Hugo Strotbaum. And Strautbaum had noticed one reference in the back of a book 
where this guy, J.K. Sutherland, had uh, ingratiated himself with Chernobyl's son. And from that, I was able to find his autobiography and then figure out uh, some of his life story. He's very good. Um, a little eccentric, maybe not the greatest virtuoso in the world, but he's very, very good. Very solid. Uh, yeah. Very, very solid. And, you know, again, this, you know, J.K. Sutherland is not necessarily in and of itself. Um, you're, you're not going to listen to this album because he's a above average youth player. I think it's really all about the American experience and about the immigrant experience yeah. of having to change his name, yeah. having to go ahead and take on a profession that was, quote unquote, respected. Yeah. And on the side kind of made these kind of recordings. And um, in, indeed, you know, for those who want to go to Ian's you know, website and kind of take a look at this particular album uh, by Dr. J.K. Sutherland, Mid-Eastern Meditations. Um, the, the first and second track specifically, I mean, this guy is an accomplished oud player. I, I don't care what anybody says. He's not Udi Hurant. He's not Richard Hagopian. He's not Ara Dinkchen. But he's a very, very good player. And I would recommend people to listen to it. It's a fun listen. And it's worth pointing out that this stuff is made in, is he's an outlier. And it's made in isolation. He's not in contact with the, that stream of Hrant and uh, Hagopian. You know, he's definitely not a Kef guy. He's not a, like, picnic party dude. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. he's in isolation, uh, you know, inventing his way of playing for himself from what he remembers from back home decades and decades later. Ian, as the change in technology has kind of gone ahead, and um, affected consumer behavior and how we go ahead and listen to music. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of people have gone ahead and thrown away a lot of LPs, a lot of cassettes. Um, many people have thrown away their 78s. Sure, that's going to go ahead and clear up some space in their home or in their studio or in their offices as we go ahead and transition and are firmly in the digital era where everything is portable. But what is the effect of going ahead and throwing these tangible products away? I think there's a general presumption that because there is so much stuff on the internet, that everything's on the internet. And the truth is, when you go back and look at libraries, big collections of books and magazines and records and all kinds of stuff, almost nothing is on the internet. <laughs> it may seem like everything's there. Not much is there. And it's understandable that records are heavy and they take up space and they're a storage problem. But I would encourage anybody within the sound of my voice to know that there's, there's a place where the stuff can go. It isn't the Library of Congress. They don't have any of this stuff. None of it. <laughs> These, there are no Armenian 78s in the Library of Congress. You know, um, it, it, it needs to, to live somewhere. There's a temptation to throw it away. Because if you try to, I don't know, sell it on eBay, or if you try to... Um, you know, sell it to a, a 78 collector whose interest is in, you know, American music or collectible 78s. Um, yeah, they, they may not want it. It may not be valued. Um, maybe that's changing, I hope. Uh, but it's, it's important that the stuff survives and that it goes somewhere to someone who will just hang on to it for a while. Just understand that it has content that there's something living inside it these are these are living souls <laughs> and inside these history. books and inside these records i mean it's and, and they can well, live right? on mm -hmm. yeah and there needs to be source material primary documentation for researchers to go to you know even stuff that isn't wonderful it's still part of a story somebody made it for a reason 
you can't keep everything. And America produces way too much stuff. And it's sitting around in huge piles. There are warehouses right now that I have worked in that the job is just to process printed material as fast as possible. And they throw away 16 wheelers full of books all day, every day, because there's just too much stuff in, in the world. We produce too much. But yeah. the old records, um, see if you can find a place for them. You know, see if you can find somebody who understands their value, because uh, it's, it's going to matter. If, if a record only sold 500 or 1,000 copies 100 years ago, a lot of them got thrown away since then. So there might only be 50 copies, 75 copies, 25 copies of something. So the condition of each one matters, you know. Um, and there's a thing about being an immigrant in the United States where after a generation or two, people don't identify so much with their background, right? Just it's a natural function. I'm American. We don't do things the old world way. So grandma and grandpa's connections to the old world and the detritus of that culture, um, the ways they cooked, uh, the books they read, uh, the records they listened to, the music, um, that all tends to get eh, discarded at a certain point because it isn't relevant to the American experience. But it will be relevant to the American experience once our country begins to understand the contributions that immigrants have made. Ian, one of the performers that have come up in a lot of your Facebook posts in the Armenian Weekly um, and in a lot of your lectures around the world and online is that of the performance of Gurung um, as performed by Zabel Panosyan. Now, I had never heard of Zabel Panosyan before your posts and you kind of bringing up her story, could you give me a little bit of perspective on who Zabel Panosyan was and why this particular performance and this particular take, I should say, of Gurung, uh, an Armenian folk song, I presume, is so important to you and is, is really kind of a, um, a story resurrected um, of a performance that is again uh, timeless. It's it's searing, and it's it is hypnotic, at least in my opinion. Yeah, uh, Zabel Panosian's 1917 recording of Grunk is uh, one of the best records I've ever heard in my life. I encountered it um, about 2010 as I was working on my big project on what I've been calling the Ottoman American diaspora, I was gifted the entire collection of a man named Leo Sarkeesian, who was a man who was then, I guess, 93 years old, uh, had grown up in Eastern Massachusetts and had worked for the voice of America. He was a broadcaster his whole life. Uh, wonderful man, brilliant person, lover of music. And um, he was dispersing some of his possessions, saw that I, we visited, I interviewed him a couple of times, and he saw that I cared. And he said, look, take the records. And it was his collection when he was young, his father's and his grandfather's. He grew up in a uh, trilingual Turkish-Armenian uh, uh, English-speaking household. And among them, there's 100 records or so, among them there was this orange label, Columbia, uh, by somebody named Zabel Panosian, and it was broken. It's cracked. But you could still play it. Just would have a tick all the way through. Tick, 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 tick. 78 times every minute. But I put it on, I listened to it, and again, it has this great stillness and control. And then it happens. And you know what I mean, right? That note. I do. I that do. note happens. That note. That note, and I stopped breathing, and I waited, and I shook my head and said, no, you're kidding me. That's not real. And then the note collapses. It falls. She glides down and sobs 
just very slightly and then takes a breath and recommences. It's, it's just magic. It's just, just an unbelievable moment for anybody. And so I tried to figure out, okay, who made this record? How did this happen? Is this some rare anomaly or something? And you Google Isabel Pinozian and there's nothing. 2010, nothing, just doesn't exist. Okay, so then you look at public records. Okay, so now we have immigration records. We find out who she was and when she was born. Um, she was from uh, Northwestern Turkey, uh, Bardasik, I think is how you say it. I only read and speak English, so I never say these words out loud. I'm pronouncing everything wrong. <laughs> no problem. Um, she was born uh, June 7th, uh, around 1890, uh, immigrated to the U.S. and married a, a photo engraver who was 31 years old. About uh, She was about 19. And um, she lived in, in around Boston. Um, sang for several years during this peak of uh, opera in the United States at the Boston Opera Company, which is this short-lived thing. Uh, where they had all of the best singers. I mean, Louisa Tetrazzini, really big stars. And she was a chorus member. She was a background singer. In 1916 and 1917, she records 11 songs. And over the years, I've been able to lay hands on all of them. Um, Grunk sold like crazy. And we know this partially because uh, the Armenian Library and Museum of America in Watertown. Uh, I went and worked several weekends to see what was there. And they take in Armenian households record collections. And they just keep them. They file them carefully, dutifully, by catalog number. Um, and you can see physically the proportions of what stuff sold. And there are two, maybe three records of which they have dozens of copies. Egan is one. Hyastan is one. Grunk is the other. It sold like crazy. Mm -hmm. And it stayed in print continuously from 1917 until 1931, when Columbia deleted its Armenian language catalog. They kept it in print and kept selling it. She spent uh, the period 1918, 1919 to 1920 touring all over the United States uh, for the Near East Relief Foundation, the Near East Relief Fund, uh, in benefit of um, survivors of the genocide. Uh, Herod Arakalian has discovered that she is by herself, the single largest donor to the Near East Relief Fund in its history. She, by herself, donated a million dollars about 1920. I mean, I, I can't even imagine yeah. what that is like in today's term. And I guess the question begs, where did she get that money? And It's about $25 million now. She got it partially because her, her husband did very well. He was uh, one of the foremost, um, he, he was a, a, a key figure in the development of the picture postcard. He was a talented engineer slash, slash artist. And they had money. And, you know, she was a, a, a socialite. And she toured like crazy. And she did all these shows and gave the money away to uh, the Near East Relief Foundation um, with Shamaradian. It was a double bill, a lot of the shows. Not all of them, she played shows by herself too, but the two of them toured around for uh, about a year, year and a half. Pardon me. And then in 1920, um, she made a trip to Europe uh, to go around and try and find lost relatives, for one thing. Find out where everybody had wound up after the, the genocide. She had enough money to be able to spend some time looking for family. 
along that trip, she played a lot of concerts. Um, she played in you know, Milan. Uh, she played in uh, rich people's houses all over England, and concert halls and stuff. And she went to Paris. And uh, Harry, uh, Harry has discovered that, um, in fact, she went and visited Gomitas uh, at the mental hospital. And in 1920, published her own account of having met Comitas in the insane asylum. A very moving description um, of, of the encounter between the two of them. Uh, she came back to the United States and um, restarted her career and changed her name to Zabel Aram. Aram was her, her husband's first name. Uh, gave her debut <laughs> in 1922 and presented herself a, not as an ethnic performer, but as a, a classical singer, um, toured all over the place, uh, went to South America, Brazil, Argentina, Florida, um, all up and down the East and West coasts. Um, yeah, I suspect now part of this that motivates me is I'd like to get inside of Zabel Pinozian's brain, which you can't do, but I'd like to know what motivates her and how she saw herself and, what her art meant to her. And I think that when Columbia Records put her records out on their E-series, for Ethnic, that's the name of this, that's why the series is called that, that that's not really what she had in mind. That's not really how she thought about herself. She was a trained singer and wanted to be thought of in, in, in the same terms as Louisa Tetrazzini. So, she tours through the 20s, uh, and by the 1930s, as she's becoming middle-aged and her voice is in decline, she retires. Um, she died in the, the 1980s. She had uh, three kids, none of whom had kids, so there are no direct descendants. But I published an article in the Armenian Weekly in Watertown uh, with what biographical information I had a few years back, and I got a, an email from a grandnephew of hers, her great-grandnephew, who sent along a beautiful photo of her uh, when she was young and said, uh, yeah, I, I remember her, but I never knew she ever had a singing career. Nobody ever mentioned that she was a singer by that time in the 19, whatever it was, 60s and 70s. She was already kind of forgotten. But Grunk, Grunk meant it, you know, everything to people. It was a, yeah. a very, very important record. It was, she said, a song that she remembered from home. It is not something she learned from anybody. Not from. It's not a gomitas thing. It's not a piece of sheet music. It's her song that she carried from childhood. And it's her arrangement. So the way it sounds and the way it feels, that's hers. It's her I've never art. heard. I've never heard a version of Gurung. And, you know, obviously in, in the Armenian recorded world and in culture, Gurung is uh, one of the most uh, widely performed pieces. It's a, you know, there's a meaning behind it. There's a statement behind it. Yeah. I've never heard it done in this fashion. And I always thought that it was a tribute to Gomitas. And this actually proves in, in some ways that, you know, Gomitas collected folk songs. And he went ahead and he, um, he arranged them and he performed many of them. But this is interesting because this is a case where Sabel Panosian remembered this folk song, made it into her own, and it is heartbreaking and immediate and searing all at the same time. I'm, I definitely hear what you hear, um, but, but here's the irony in all this, is that for a record that sold so much back in that era. I spent 20 years in Boston. I spent my ear to the ground in the music community there as well. I never heard this performer mentioned once. I never heard this performance performed once. And it hasn't been until you and your team of really just uh, heroic people have resurrected this particular performance to life. And 
you know, thank you for that because um, it, it's it, it's extremely important that we remember these performances, these circumstances, and this part of history, because whether or not you're listening to something on a scratchy 78 or not, at the end of the day, those technical imperfections go away, and then you get right down to the performance of it. And Ian Nagoski, what is it that basically is your relationships to these performances? Is there a personal relationship to all of these performances that move you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm dealing with uh, ghosts all the time. These are disembodied voices of the dead that I participate in rituals with. <laughs> you see, the act of listening to a record, you know, isn't just pushing a button. You have an object that weighs a half a pound, and you put it on a shrine, an altar, and you move the thing, and you go through these physical procedures to come in contact with the voice of the dead. And if the dead person is a goof <laughs> or a jerk, okay, that's who you're hanging out with. And right. if the person is somebody with a lot of uh, soul and hopes and dreams in their hearts, you, you can hear that. And um, with Zabel, I, I can hear that she's, she's reaching for something. Um, she's, she's a very creative person. Um, she is not as good as Tetrazzini. <laughs> right. She did, she did duplicate Tetrazzini on one recording and, um, no, she's, she's not as good. She's very, very, very good. And it is disconcerting that she was forgotten for so long. You know, I, I have a tendency to want to shake my fist and scream at the sky a little bit that people do forget when beautiful things are made. But I get it, too. Um, from the Armenian standpoint, the 20s, the 30s, people were sick and tired of the starving Armenian, of that phrase, of that type, of that image. They didn't want to deal with that anymore. They didn't want to talk about the heartbreak. They didn't want to talk about losing all their family. They didn't want to talk about not having home to go back to. Now they have Armenia, but they don't have where they actually came from, Diyarbakir, or Urfa, or Istanbul, or somewhere. And, you know, those places are significant. And that's, that's what Grunk is about. Grunk is about um, her Grunk is what's going on at home. We're stranded here and we're scared. Something terrible has happened. What happened? You know, 1917, Armenians in the U.S. are really understanding that nothing is ever going to be the same. And that's what Grunk is, I think. And having come to that understanding, you know, the song carries more weight for me and I think for other people. But it's, it's a, a wonderful thing that it still exists. You know, these old, old records continue. They're made of stone. they last a very long time, you know. So that's how we still get to hear it. Um, the digital copies of, of Grunk that I'm making and that are circulating, those will all be gone in 100 years. The record itself that she made in 1917, That'll be here for hundreds and hundreds of years if they're cared for. Yeah. Um, they'll outlast you and me and everybody who knows us for a long time. Um, they are stones. They're marbles. Ian so, Nagoski, thank you so much for enlightening us on what you do, uh, what you've done, uh, along with many others, is, is so important. And um, you've contributed so much toward um, the memory and kind of the history of, of people and music. Um, what a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being Thanks with us today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's really nice talking with you. Take care. You got it. Take care. That concludes my two-part conversation with Ian Nagoski. 
This interview was the first time I had spoken with Ian. After seeing his posts on Facebook about old Armenian 78 RPM records via mutual friends, I reached out to him and asked him to be on the podcast. His work has been invaluable, not only to Armenians, but to all of us interested in history and music. At the end of the day, he has provided a dignity to the performances at risk of being lost to the dustbins of history. Before playing our final song to close out the program, I wanted to make a few recommendations. For those interested in the subject Kemani Minas was singing about in his song, Agen, or, as some people like to say, Agen, seek out any book by Vahakan Dadrian and read about the 1894 to 1896 Hamidian massacres against the Armenians. The story of Dr. J.K. Sutherland certainly has its roots firmly planted in the Armenian genocide. However, to me, the real story, as explained by Ian, was how he had to change his name to avoid discrimination after he came to the United States. If you want to know more about Dr. Sutherland and his story, try to get your hands on his autobiography. If you want to know what it was like in Fresno, California in the first half of the 20th century, and how hard it was for Armenians. Read the book In My Father's Name by Mark Adox. It was published in 1997 by Simon & Schuster. Fresno wasn't always so kind to Armenians. Let's end the program with a performance from 1917 on the Columbia record label. Here is Zabel Panosian's performance of Gurung.
All music featured on this podcast is presented with the permission of the record label, Canary Records, or is a public domain recording. This is a Pomegranate Music production.